So we talk about God's process to purpose. That's what I want to talk to you about. We have been talking about remembrance and being a people in a state of remembrance. Really, I think the purpose of why God launched the conviction of remembrance in our hearts is because he wanted us to put him back at the center of our lives and to begin to move beyond the drama of life situations, to remember the Lord our God, to understand that he is at the center of all that's been playing and that's been going down inside of our own lives. If, if we don't consolidate around the reality of God, then we get scattered in all sorts of directions as we try to understand different situations and the drama of life. But God wants us to move him back at the center. He is the core. He is the reason. He is the he is, the, he is the core motivation why things have been going down. And unless we can see that, there will be no healing, there will be no consolidation, and then there will be no preparation for the next thing that God wants to do inside of our lives. So instead of seeing the drama of life, we really want to be seeing God. We really want to be seeing God. Instead of seeing the drama of life, we want to be seeing God. And that's, that's the key issue about remembrance. And so as, as I talk to you about uh, God's process to purpose today, or if you want to call it just the process to purpose, uh, the process to purpose, God's process to, to purpose, or the process to purpose, uh, if you want to simplify the, the topic, the, you know, the topic for, for today, the process to purpose. I want to talk to you about that, and let's talk about that and talk about how that looks like. I want to jump off from the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we have been using as we have been talking about remembrance issues. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. And we've heard how this book of Deuteronomy is a book of, about repeating the law, about saying the things that we have heard before, saying them again, articulating these things again. And so I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 5 for us. It says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. To teach you, the purpose was to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So it ends in verse 5 with the idea of the discipline of the Lord upon those whom he loves. God, the idea that God disciplines us. And so I want to talk to us about the process to purpose or God's process to purpose. And I want to read that scripture again just with some definitions and some clarifications out of it. Thing, the first thing that God says to us is be careful. The need to be careful. Uh, I think in Hebrews it says, pay careful attention to things. 
Be careful. And that word careful is the same word that was spoken to Adam when he was planted in the Garden of Eden to look after it, to take care of it. That is the word. To take care of things. Be careful or take care of this. The word means to hedge about, to create a fence around something, to protect that which God is doing inside of my life, to hedge about, to attend to something. And of course, same word used, as I've said in Genesis 2 verse 15, when Adam had to take care of the garden, to watch over something, to keep it protected. And so God says, be careful. Put a hedge around what I'm saying to you. Protect it inside of your own hearts. Be careful to follow, he says. Be careful to follow. And that word follow, it does not describe an abstract following or walking behind somebody. The word follow, to follow means to do and to make, to have a whole production based on what God is saying inside of our own lives. To bring to bear, to bring to a place of performance, of manifestation, to be productive in the word of the Lord, to take those things that the Lord is saying to us and to create something with it. To, to be creative, to be pro, uh, productive. That's what that word follow means. So this does not describe an abstract, absent-minded walking behind somebody, but it talks about this creative ability, this productive capacity, that when God is speaking to a people, those people must have the ability to create a whole set of new realities. So God says, be careful to be creating. Be careful, LSA, to be producing a bunch of new things. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase, so that you may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. And for us, we are not talking about a land as in a, a piece of real estate, a, a, a piece of land, or real, you know, you know, physical land. We're talking about the promises of the Lord, the things that God has said to us, that we have to enter into those things. We have to produce them. We have to create them. We have to follow in the sense of creating these realities that God is speaking to us. Then he says in verse to remember. And of course, we've been talking about remembrance meaning to mark something so that you can recognize it again. Remember, to register it in your heart and in your mind. Remember, to think about it, to recollect it, to acknowledge what has gone down inside of your own life, but to mention it also to your fellow brothers and sisters, to talk about it. You register it, you acknowledge it. Yeah, you know, during the two and a half years, a bunch of stuff has happened inside of me, but you also talk about it to your fellow brothers and sisters. Remember. So remembering is not a passive activity. It's not a silent, private activity. It's a very much a relational process of talking to those with whom that, that God has ordained within your relational space. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert. You've got to remember not the dramas of life, not the situation, not the stories, but remember the Lord and remember how he led you. We sang here about the mercies of God and the faithfulness of God, how he's led us, how he showed up in time 
inside of our situations. How the Lord, uh, your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you. So the purpose was to engage you in a process of divine approval. To approve of you, to test, to see, to scrutinize, and to bring you to a place where God is pleased with you divine approval, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. So God was taking us inside of this, you know, season um, uh, through a time of revelation of, uh, you know, of, of apocalypse, of the uncovering of a whole bunch of stuff. Man, have we not seen stuff? We have, right? Things we may have not known that existed inside of our own hearts were uncovered. The word apocalypse means the opening of the curtain so that we can see what we could not see before. And so God says, I need to take you on a journey to test you, to humble you, to see what is really in your heart and to bring you to a place of apocalypse, of uncovering, of being uncovered by the Lord so that things can be exposed. And the book of Revelation is a book of apocalypse. It's a book of revelation. That word revelation, the Greek, Greek being the English word apocalypse. The book of revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we go through the book of revelation of Jesus Christ, we see all sorts of things. We see beasts. We see monsters. We see dragons. We see things that we don't wish to see. And so when God opens up curtains, we don't only see glorious things, but we also see the dark side of life. We see the dragons. We see beasts. We see monsters. We see beings that are, you know, seeking to devour our lives. And yes, in the two and a half years, we have seen a whole bunch of stuff. But God wanted us to see these things. And he wanted to show, in order to reveal and expose what was truly in our heart. Whether or not you would keep my commands. That's what it says there in verse 2. So the purpose of the process is spiritual purification. God has to take a people through a process of spiritual purification to bring them to a place of exposure, of uncovering, of revelation, to uncover them and to purify them. Then it says in verse 3, he, he, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you. There's a dynamic interaction about God causing human need and supplying that need. You're living and have been living inside of that cycle, which is very, very uncomfortable for us human beings. And God creates the need, but then he supplies that need. I have caused you to hunger, and then I fed you with the manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you the purpose, the objective of the process was spiritual formation. That I was teaching you a bunch of things. I was forming on the inside of you. I was imparting values and principles inside of your own heart. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And what is God doing here in verse 3? He's moving us to a place where spiritual life is no longer abstract. It is now real. It is real for our sustenance. 
Men cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. The word of the Lord is no longer just a, a thing in my file, in my audios, in my notes. It is for my very sustenance. It sustains me. And he brings these people to a place where they have been self-sustaining. They've been working hard in, the, in, the, in, in Egypt and producing a whole bunch of things. And he brings them to a place where they have to understand that the word of the Lord is crucial for their sustenance. Without God speaking, I cannot live. I am dead. I have no life. If God has to withdraw his word in my life, then I, have, I am gone. I'm done. He says in verse 4, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So we are learning about the other side of God's love. And what is that other side? Let's say that word, discipline. What is that word? Discipline. That's the other side of God's love. It's called discipline. So in this scripture, we're learning and we're seeing God taking a people on the process to purpose. And how God would do that. Discipline is a crucial element in that process. How God has to take a people like LSA. How God has to take a church from nothingness into purpose. What does he use? The rod of discipline. The rod of discipline. And so we get to understand what God has really been doing inside of the two and a half years. So it means, LSA, that those who are called by the Lord must resist the idea that they are exempt from hardship and difficulty. Because God leads and he leads them to purpose by discipline. Those who are called by God must resist the idea that they are exempt from hardship and difficulty. They must resist the right of entitlement to positive and favorable life. And those who are called by God, actually, like we've seen this company of people, the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, those who are called by the Lord are oftentimes have to be humbled, they have to be tested, they have to be approved through the process of suffering. They have to be humbled, tested, and approved through the process of suffering. And this reminds us of the very process of Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant who had to be approved by God the Father. Jesus Christ. And so we can look to him. We can look to his example, to, to him as an example for us. So what is, if we have to ask the question, why has God, God been doing the last two and a half years, in the last three years. Or what has God been doing since you and I got saved is that he's been leading us through the process of discipline to move us to what we call purpose. But that is taking place, or that has been taking place through the process of discipline. Now, let us look to Jesus, the suffering servant, in Isaiah 53. We look to Jesus, the example for us, our example. He is the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, and he leaves us with a bunch of examples, of patterns, of, 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 of understandings of how God journeys with a people that he wants to take to a place called kingdom purpose. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, 
Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the prophet Isaiah begins the testimony about Jesus, the suffering servant, by talking about the issue of cynicism and disbelief. That the testimony of Christ or the journey to Christ takes place within an environment where people are cynical and unbelieving. Who has believed our message? In verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Remember that in Isaiah chapter 11, the idea of the tender shoot. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a, a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. That's the process of the things of God. They are not attractive. They are not cosmetically attractive. They have no outward appearance that is attractive to us. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So when we look at the process of God, the first thing we're confronted with is actually in our carnal selves, we don't want to come close to the processes of God. They are unattractive to men. Because men, like us, like to associate themselves with positive things, inverted commas. He was despised, in verse 3, and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so the process of the law takes place in an environment of rejection and disassociation. The very word that from which we get the word living stones agency describes the idea of, of people gathering around the living stone, but the builders rejecting the stone. And so the process of the Lord takes place within an environment of rejection and, and disassociation. Those who are following the Lord have to embed within their own psychology the, the reality that there's going to be rejection along the way. And this association. In verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And so there's a blind perspective in the process of God, where those who are blind confuse suffering for judgment. They think that when a people engage in the process of God and in the purpose of God walk through suffering, they confuse that with judgment. Didn't Job go through that very same situation with his friends? They thought, mm, surely God is judging you for some sin inside of your own life. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. And there's this dynamic interaction between Christ's personal experience and the well-being of the collective. He was pierced for our, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. There's a dynamic relationship between those engaged in the process of the Lord and the healing and transformation that takes place 
in the wider company. Why is God taking you and I through a process of, of suffering? It's because there are communities that he wants us to touch. There are communities and people out there. There, there are youths out there. There's a, there's a generation out there that he wants you and I to be able to have influence over. And for that to happen, we've got to be able to carry the load and the burden of the Lord. We've got to have the mindset to understand that whatever that I'm going through in, inside of my own personal life is really designed to bring corporate value. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon the one man. So we're seeing a dynamic relationship. And how the value of God moves from one man to the company. It's all in the attitude with which Christ carries the process of the cross. And he leaves us an example to understand this. It continues in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will. It was what? It was what? The Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It was the Lord's will. We are confronted. The process of the Lord to purpose. How God takes a people to purpose. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And the word crush means to beat and to break to pieces. To beat and to break to pieces. It was the Lord's will to crush him. The Lord will use and continue using situations of life to crush you and I to a place where we are beaten and broken to pieces where we understand that we are nothing except in the purpose of the Lord. To crush him and to cause him to suffer. That word suffer means to go through painful disaster. To go through calamity. To go through um, dramatic you know, situations that are painful. To cause him to suffer. And I say, how do we carry the pain of life? And how do we convert the pain of life into an energy, spiritual energy in the purposes of the Lord? To cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his end. He will see his offspring. There will be a generational inheritance in this process. There is going to be a generational succession. God is going to produce something powerful in the lineage of this man, in the lineage of this company. And then it says in verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light. And so God eventually moves the one that is taking on a journey to purpose to a place called light. And he will be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant 
will justify many. And so in the process of suffering, God forms a, a wealth, a bank of knowledge, um, resources of revelation within our own hearts that we may go and touch many communities out there. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured. That word poured means to empty myself. To empty myself. That God, I have no, I, there's, there's nothing that remains within me that justifies my identity in this earth. I have poured myself to you. I am empty. I'm an empty man and I am an empty woman. I have poured myself. Interesting that in verse 11 it says, after the suffering of his soul. That's the point of this process. The suffering of his soul. The suffering of this soul. Which means that the process to purpose is designed to bring inner spiritual formation. The suffering of his soul. You know, the thing that God is after is he takes you and I through difficult moments and situations and through the rod of discipline is spiritual formation of our own soul through the suffering of his soul. The thing that God really wants to do, he's not really interested in, in the socioeconomic, you know, situations of your life. He's more interested in the building up of your soul. The purpose of the Lord, or the purposes of the Lord, are not allocated simply by prophecy. How many people have some prophecy in your life? Let's say many of us here. But by a process of designated suffering. The purposes of the Lord are not allocated simply by prophecy. And that's not to discount a prophetic word or prophetic ministry to us. But a mere prophecy does not usher you into the fullness of purpose. God has to take you and I through a process of designated suffering. And so we've received great prophecies. And God, man, I'm so happy and grateful for the prophecies I've received over the years. But we've had to walk through the process of being proven in those pro pro prophecies. Like Joseph, we had to be proven in the word of God in Psalm 105 verse 19. He had to be proven true in the word of the Lord. So, so too have we had to be proven in the prophecies that we have received. Because God will not allocate his purpose to an unformed, immature, and prophetically entitled people. God will not allocate his purpose to an unformed, immature, and prophetically entitled people. I know Joseph started his journey by celebrating a, a prophetic word, a dream he had heard, right? And he very willingly shared it with his brother. He was excited about a, what looked like a significant future in his life until the process started in his life. And I'm sure he got to a point where he forgot about that prophetic word. And, 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 and God in his faithfulness ushered him into what God had said in his life. That's amazing. Christ, the suffering servant. And what we see about suffering, LSA, is that it produces a measured people 
of less words. A people who excel in obedience. So when you start the journey with God, you start receiving a, a prophetic word and you're excited and you're going around and telling everybody about your prophetic word and you get to a point. You get to a point where sometimes you don't even want to talk about that word. You get to a point where you're measured and are of less words. You're just focusing on implementation and fulfillment. In Isaiah 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The process of God will cause you to shut your mouth as you focus more on implementation and, and, and obedience. Here's how Peter, in the book of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, puts this. In verse 23, chapter 2, when they held, they insulted him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When they held insults, they insulted him. And that phrase, to he, held insults at him, means to criticize in an insulting manner. To criticize in an insulting manner. And how do we do and what do we do when we are being criticized and insulted? It says about Christ, he did not retaliate. And that word retaliate literally means to return the favor by criticizing back your critics. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, that word suffered mean, meaning to go through painful experiences. Literally meaning to go through painful experiences. I want you to think about your pain. Think about your painful experiences. To go through painful experiences, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted, meaning he surrendered himself to him who judges justly. It is a place of devotion as the people walk through the process of suffering. This is how God ushers us into his purpose through the rod of discipline. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, to this you are called, LSA, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He suffered for you. It does not end there. But leaving you an example, that word example it means a, a, a graphic that can be copy-pasted, almost like a logo. Like you and I carry this, this identity, this mindset that is like Jesus Christ. We willingly embrace the process of the Lord through the rod of discipline as it takes us to purpose. The graphic inside of our own hearts. That same mindset that was upon Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. That same logo, that same graphic, that same inscription that was upon Jesus Christ is now upon us. The mindset, the attitude to suffer for the Lord is now upon us. Is now upon us. Christ, the suffering servant, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 10, it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 10, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So we see Jesus practicing dependence on God through devotion. Our devotion is an expression of dependence upon the Lord. That's what we see in verse 7. Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So he was a son already. He had an identity from God already. So prophetic identity does not exempt us from the process of suffering. Prophetic identity, the things that God has said inside of our own lives, those things do not exempt us from the process of suffering. But suffering is no disconfirmation of prophetic identity. So we see this almost a conflicting statement. Jesus was already a son, but he learned obedience from what he suffered. It's almost like it does not make sense. It's, it's conflicting, and yet it is spiritually correct and appropriate. So we start the journey in the, process, in the purposes of the Lord with an identity from God. God speaks to us. He tells us who we are. He defines us by a prophetic word. But then he launches us on a process of suffering so that we can learn obedience in the identity that we already have. In verse 9, once made perfect, he became. So the process must take its cause until you and I reach maturity. Whatever that looks like, whatever that, you know, it is that God has designated for us, for us LSA, for you as an individual, there is a point of maturity. Once he reached that, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And that's what God wants, LSA. A people that can be a source of life. Not simply people who are doing ministry activities. A people that can be a source of life to others. And others may come and put pressure on us and receive life from us. That we become the source of eternal salvation. A pe- that, 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 that communities can come and press upon us and receive not just preachings, not just ministry activities, but literally life. That in our construct, in our being, we become the source of life. Then God designates us. That word designated means to address someone by name in public. It's almost like a public confirmation of an identity. You start the journey with a word from God in a very, very private context, and may God may have spoken to you with a few circle of friends who know what God has said, but then there comes a point where God has to approve and designate in a public context. Like Jesus emerging out of the waters and being declared, this is my son. There has to come, you know, it's, it's got to come to that, to that time, to that place. He was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the designation of new identity takes place in public. It must be seen by all. But the initiation of the process is oftentimes a private, uh, you know, matter. 
between you and God and maybe a few others or maybe inside of this context of community. But there has to come a time where God designates in a public context. That's what we see about Jesus in Hebrews chapter, chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, it says this. Again, we're tracking, tra- tracking, we're tracking uh, Jesus, the, the, the suffering servant here. In Hebrews, 5, uh, in Hebrews 2, verses 17 to 18, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. For this reason, for this reason, for the reason of the purpose of God, for the reason of God's mission, of God's will, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in, in, in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able. That's where you and I want to find ourselves in. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he himself suffered, he is able. He is able. Let's look into that. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 to 18 says, First and foremost, he had to be made like his brothers. So the suffering of the Lord is designated to bring us to a deep sense of identification with the generation that we're called to serve. Are we able to speak to a COVID-19 generation? Are we able to speak to a generation of broken communities and townships and in neighborhoods? To a social media generation? Is there a sense of identification? He had to be made like his brothers. Then it says, he became merciful. He became merciful. The process of the Lord makes us merciful. The fruit of that process is a deep sense of compassion for those around us. We're no longer walking with a a sense of uh, uh, indifference about human conditions. We carry compassion. We are compassionate to people. There is a sense of mercy within our own hearts because we have gone through the process of suffering. We have experienced what the people have experienced out there. And so what God wants is, is to take the youth of LSA so that they can speak to young people out there. Is to take you know, you know, a man like me to be able to speak to uh, the 40-year-old man, 30, 40-year-old man out there. Is to take women of LSA so that you can be able to speak to other women out there. That's what God wants to do. But there has to be mercy. And mercy is produced by the process of suffering. When you've known and come to across and come into contact with someone who's gone through the process that you've gone through, compassion kicks in. Not only was he merciful, he was faithful. The process of the Lord makes us dependable. The post-COVID-19 environment has to be an environment of a dependable people. That the Lord does not have to wonder what 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 we're thinking and we're not lost in wild imaginations we are a faithful people that we can launch on a process of god on a mission of god and bring it to to fulfillment to completion because god can depend on us but it also says about christ that he was able because of the process of suffering in his life he is able The process of the Lord produces competent people 
out of us. It produces competent, spiritually competent people out of us. You know, sometimes when you walk into someone's situation and you're still asking a lot of questions about what needs to be done and how, it just shows that there's no identification. It shows that you have not gone through the experience that these people find themselves in. And so you, you, you maybe need to be taken by the law on a journey. But when you walk into a situation and you've gone through the same situation as a person before you, you ask less questions and oftentimes you have more solutions. Because you have been, you yourself have gone through something. You, 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 that's why Jesus had to come as a human being and go to the cross and had to be tempted in every way. So he understands. He can deal and help, help us in our own temptations because he understands how temptation works. And that's how this principle works. And in other words, the process of the Lord, we can say, moves us to a place of leadership. It moves us to a place where we are ministers of the gospel, effective ministers of the gospel. It moves us to a place of, 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 of fellowship. You know, do you know when, when we've gone through some painful experiences and you, you know, if, and then you find, you go to someone who happens to go through the same thing that you may have gone through, you, you, you really just, just, just know how, what to do. Because what you do in, this, in that situation, you think about yourself. You think about, God, what would I have wanted inside of this situation? How would I have wanted people to minister to me inside of this situation? And the answers to those questions is what helps you to minister to others. And that basically is a principle in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 to 18 that we're being told about. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, in Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable. There comes in the, that question of competence again, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is a powerful principle. It speaks about the fact that identification with our generation should not be based on sentiment and self-righteousness. We don't relate or identify with people just on some little self-righteous emotions. It must be based on a victorious process that proceeds from common human challenges and experiences. So because we've gone through challenge and, and, and experiences and painful experiences, we can identify with the people. But we have something else, a victorious process. Because it says about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with, it, with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet. And that yet there is important for us. He was without sin. So God wants whole and healed people helping other people. In the world, what happens is that broken people help broken people. Because broken people feel like they, they understand broken people. But actually, God wants to take a broken people, heal them, make them whole, so that they can go back and help others. What is the fruit of that process in verse 16? It then says the company 
says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. So you have a company moving to a place of confidence in their own desire for proximity, for, 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 for proximity towards God. Because they have, been, they have seen a good example in Jesus Christ. And because as church, we have seen a good example in Jesus Christ, we ourselves want to experience the throne. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the fruit of that process is that the company, the collective, comes closer. They feel empowered to also start the journey of victory. They feel like, well, we don't have to, be, we don't have to remain broken. If Y has gone through this, if Mr. Mafa has gone through what he's gone through and has been found to be victorious, then means I can also be victorious. So there's that, 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 that you know, confidence upon the collective that kicks in when we step in. So it's not broken people helping broken people. It's empowered, healed, whole people helping broken people. And that's how God works and that's how God wants us to do this. That's how God wants us to do this. That's how God wants us to do this. In Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 12, tracking the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 12. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom every, everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are, who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The fruit of, the, fruit of this process is a company gathered around Jesus, around the one who came to help. In bringing many sons to glory, God, God's heart is to bring kingdom transformation, LSA, to communities. There are people who are not here that God wants to bring here. He wants to bring how many sons? How many sons? Many sons to glory. God wants to bring many sons to glory. And, and so what, what does he do? He focuses on those that he initially calls the author of salvation to make them perfect through suffering. And bring them to a place of integration where they become a family. How beautiful is that? Where they become a family. So suffering is a time of hardship and loss. It is during this time that vision, conviction, character, and leadership are tested. Vision, conviction, character, and leadership are not tested in good days. They're tested in dark days, in difficult days, in difficult times, in times of suffering. That's when God tests these things. What does the Bible say about suffering? I'll jump, just going to read these scriptures. I'm going to read them later at home. Romans 5 verse 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. We what? Rejoice. We what? Rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. The question you and I need to be asking is how? There are mechanics, spiritual mechanics that need to be at play inside of our own hearts for suffering to produce perseverance. Otherwise, suffering will surely produce depression. 
Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. It's Romans 5, verses 2 to 4. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly, there is that word again, rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And the word trials being the word doki, dokimion uh, and the word dokimazo, which, which is a word to test, to scrutinize, and to approve. The process by which they tested real money from counterfeit money back in those days, coins and, um, and metals and other things. And so trials, the word says, are a mechanism of testing our faith. In James chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. There is that word. What's a consistent word in these verses? Joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Mature and complete, not lacking anything. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 8, I'm just reading these scriptures for you. What does the Bible say about suffering? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. This is Paul talking to the young man, Timothy. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so we are even called to join with in suffering. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. There is that word again. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from, the, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange, which is the word foreign, stranger, you know, um, something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. There is that word again. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Second Corinthians 4.17 For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. They are achieving. That word achieving meaning they are working out and bringing about. There is a working out and there is a bringing about. And these are some of the scriptures, not all of them, that speak about suffering in the word of the Lord. And the key word that always goes with suffering is rejoice. 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 But what we see in these scriptures that I've just read for you is that suffering precedes the glory of God. Suffering is a trigger for the manifestation of the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, 
This trials come so that Jesus may be revealed in you. In 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, rejoice that you participate in the suffering so that his glory might be revealed in you. And so we're seeing that all the time. When suffering shows up, it means that the glory of, of the Lord is about to break out in a people. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing, the glory, comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There we see again the relationship between suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. Romans 8, 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present moment. Our groaning means to moan jointly, a company of people moaning and groaning before the Lord, to go through a, a, you know, a, a painful experience together. And so there's a company, there's a collective that is groaning before the Lord. But in the process of groaning, there's a sighting of the glory of God, suffering and glory, suffering and glory. It means that suffering has a prophetic significance, LSA. We're not here teaching, oh, let's go around and inviting pain in our lives. But where pain comes, where God brings pain in our lives, it means there's something that he wants to produce through our hearts. Through our hearts. And so the process of the Lord, oftentimes along the way, means we're losing things. But also that we are gaining purpose. Sounds like the new ecology process, right? The way in which we deal with loss as we pursue purpose proves the validity and the scope of our vision and conviction. How we test and prove a people's vision is not when they're sitting in a coffee shop and journaling and talking about the nice things. It's when they're going through difficulty and challenge. The way in which we deal with loss as we pursue purpose proves the validity and the scope of our vision and our conviction. So our, scope, our vision is tested in a time of difficulty and in a time of loss. Again, if we consider Jesus in Hebrews 12 now, the suffering servant, it says in verse 2, Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith. Interesting that the word of God calls us to fix our eyes not on some celebrity or sports personality, on Jesus, not on some motivational speaker, on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith, who for the joy set before him enjoyed the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That word enjoyed means to be unchanging in difficult times. You normally find that people tend to change in difficult times. To be unchanging under pressure. To be unchanging in difficult times. So he enjoyed, it means Jesus was consistent in the midst of pressure. In the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty. He did not change. He willingly offered his life because of a vision of salvation of mankind. So vision is tested when we have to lose something. Not when we have to gain something. Consider him, in verse 3, who enjoyed such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your, your blood. And you have forgotten 
That word of encouragement, that is interesting. What kind of word? What kind of word? An encouraging word. But this word is talking about suffering and pain. How encouraging is that word? The word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He punishes how many people? He punishes how many people? Everyone in this room. Everyone that he accepts as a son. Enjoy hardship as discipline. Enjoy hardship as discipline. That phrase, hardship, enduring hardship as discipline, meaning education and training that a parent takes a child through. Talks about your formative process. So really, the rod of discipline is God coming like a father and treating you like a child. Enjoy hardship as discipline. God is treating you, LSA, as what? Sons. As what? Sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? So what does the discipline of the Lord look like inside of your life, inside of my life? But we have the example of Jesus. Let us fix our eyes. He was unchanging under pressure. Consider him who was unchanging under, under pressure. So in Hebrews 12, the discipline of the Lord equals hardship and life challenges. It is designed to bring redemption, spiritual formation, and maturity in us. It is designed to bring redemption, spiritual formation, and maturity inside of our lives. The discipline of the Lord. Jesus willingly offered his life for the vision of salvation of mankind. And the question is, what am I willing to lose for the things God has placed in my heart? What are you willing to lose for the things God has placed in your heart? What are we willing to lose for the things God has placed in our hearts? Even in the realm of human vision, there is no pursuit of any significant goal without the readiness to lose something. Yeah? Consider the generation of Mandela and all of those people who had nice careers and vocations, who gave them away, whose lives and families were, were disrupted for the goal that they were pursuing. So here's the thing, LSA. We're not going to bring kingdom humanity to the world, folding our legs and sipping cappuccinos. And I thought about that. It's dramatic enough because I love coffee. We are not going to bring kingdom humanity to the world, folding our legs and sipping cappuccinos. The principle stands. It does not mean that we stop drinking coffee. But the principle stands. Any birthing of new life comes with much pain. But the prospects of new life is what sustains a people in the midst of that pain. How beautiful is that? And that's the mystery of giving birth. That's the mystery of giving birth. If we consider Jesus again, if we have to walk with Jesus, there's a full cycle LSA of the life of Christ that we have to walk through. What is that? Suffering and glory, death and resurrection. What's the cycle? Suffering and glory, death and and resurrection. Suffering and glory, death and resurrection. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So spoiled children want to share only in the glory. But actually, Christ calls us to also share in his sufferings. Philippians 3 verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, in verse 11, so, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the full cycle of the life of Jesus is that you've got to have stories of glory. Yeah, great stories of glory where God showed up and things exploded. But let me tell you, let's say, you're going to also have to have stories of suffering. You've got to have stories of resurrection where God showed up miraculously in your life and brought things to life. The third day reality. But you can't wish for resurrection if you don't embrace death. Because how do you get resurrected without death? That's a full cycle of the life of Jesus Christ. And as we conclude this, we consider Esau in this process of losing life and gaining purpose. We consider Esau. In Hebrews 12, verses 16 to 17. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance as the older son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. How interesting is the story. No one must be godless like Esau. That word godless meaning to lack spiritual value and substance. That which is not consecrated before the Lord. No one must be godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold. That word sold means to give away and to give up. I think we've seen a giving up, a giving up and a giving away during COVID, right? To give away and to give up. Like Esau, who for a single meal sold or gave up and gave away his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Hebrews 12, verses 16 to 17. If you pick the story from Genesis 25, verse 32, it's a conversation between Esau and his brother Jacob. He comes back from hunting. I think he's pushed himself too far that day. He's hectically hungry and he needs a meal. And he walks in and he smells the curry of his brother. And he says, brother, will you give me a meal? And his brother, being Jacob, he's been looking for that opportunity. He says, well, if you want the meal, give me your birthright. And the response of Esau in Genesis 25, verse 32, look, I'm about to die. Esau said, what good is a birthright to me? What good is a birthright to me? And that's been the nature of the, in a sense, the COVID-19 season. I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? A giving up and a giving away of the birthright 
of the Lord inside of our lives and inside of people's lives. In Genesis 25, 34, it concludes by saying, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So it says, Esau despised his birthright. That word despise means to devalue something. It means to disrespect it. It also means a changing of priorities. It means Esau's priority changed at that moment in time. And he gave away what was actually the inheritance of the Lord inside of his life. Here's the thing about Esau. Esau liked purpose, but he didn't like hardship. Esau liked purpose, but he didn't like hardship. Let's say that together. Esau liked purpose, but he didn't like hardship. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? Because how is it going to happen eh? Esau liked purpose, but he didn't like hardship, discomfort, and difficulty. He was not willing to suffer for a spiritual inheritance in God. He liked purpose, but he didn't like hardship. In the natural, Esau was actually very hungry to the point of death. And so traded, maybe you could say justifiably, traded his prophetic identity for food. But in the spirit, Esau proved to lack consecration and spiritual value. And he despised purpose, although he later desired it. He wept for it. He wanted it, but he couldn't get it. What does this tell us, Ellie says? The spirit realm reads the decisions and the actions of our lives and not the words of our lips. So what, what his spirit realm was reading was the actions of Esau, not his crying and weeping. The actions the actions of Esau. That which causes you and I to stumble in our journey to Christ is idolized above Christ. That which causes you and I to stumble in our journey to Christ is idolized above Christ. That's how we know the idols of our lives. That which causes you and I to stumble in our journey to Christ is idolized Above Christ. Of course, we are not to love our lives above Jesus. Not the lives of our spouses and children. Not the lives of our friends and cousins. That which causes you to stumble in your journey to Christ is actually proving to be an idol. In other words, that pain that disrupts your journey. Of course, pain is, we have to process pain, we have to grieve and all of those things. And all of that is provided for in the word of God. But if it causes you and I to stumble, it means that thing is an idol in some shape and form. And God wants to deal with that. God wants to deal with that. There are idols that are exposed by comfort and there are idols that are exposed by hardship. There are idols that are exposed by comfort and there are idols that are exposed by hardship. Some of us do very well in comfort. We know well, we can manage comfort very well, but hmm, hardship and pain becomes a challenge. Some of us do very well in hardship and pain, but bring comfort. It's like, uh, you know, it, 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 some idols are exposed by comfort and some by hardship. And we've got to know ourselves. We've got to let God expose what is in our hearts, Elise. Absolutely, absolutely important. So actually, when we think about it, Hebrews 12 is a comparison between Jesus it begins by consider Jesus and it ends with do not be like Esau. 
It's a comparison between Jesus and Esau. So we must consider Jesus who gave up his life for the sake of salvation of mankind. We must not follow the example of Esau who preserved his life at the expense of peoples. We must consider Jesus who gave up his life for the sake of salvation of mankind. But we must not follow the example of Esau who preserved his life at the expense of peoples. So Hebrews 12 is comparing between Jesus and Esau. Our priority has been predefined. Matthew 6, 13, we must seek first the kingdom and then these things will be given. We must never find ourselves in Esau's challenge of conf- being conflicted between peoples and, our, and, and our, our, our personal needs. We must consider Jesus, but we must not follow the example of Esau. As we end the suffering of the soul, it talks about in Isaiah 53, it says, God gives priority to inner spiritual formation of a people on a process to purpose. He is very much concerned about the state of our inner life. And we are not, to go, we are, we, we, we are not going to bring, like we said earlier, we're not going to bring kingdom humanity to, to the world, folding our legs and sipping cappuccinos. That's just a, a metaphoric way of expressing a principle there. God will not allocate his purpose to an unformed, untested, immature, and prophetically entitled people who are allergic to hardship. You know, sometimes we have allergies to difficulty. Once difficult situations come, man, the allergies begin showing up. And what an allergy is, just an area of weakness in your immune, immune system in relation to that particular issue. We've got to build the inner strength of Jesus, Ephesians 3, the inner strength that empowers us so that there are no allergies to hardship. The purpose of the Lord or the purposes of the Lord are not allocated simply by prophecy, but also by a process of designated suffering. So, Elisa, we've received great, great prophecies, have we? Haven't we? We've now had to walk through the process of being proven in those prophecies. The process of dokimazo, of proving the authenticity of the coin. And and that's what we declare, the God's process to purpose, or the process to purpose. This is what we want to embrace, and this gives us perspective even as we remember the Lord, what God has been doing inside of our lives, actually. When we start talking, the engaging and talking, the, the suffering conversation, you start removing names and people. Focus, you focus on the Lord. You remember the Lord your God who causes you to hunger to then feed you, who takes you on a journey, a process to purpose by the rod of discipline. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. The rod of discipline.